<clears throat> Amen. All right, well, we're there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And if you remember last week, we, well, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, making application as we go along. And last week, if you remember, we just made it through the first 12 uh, verses, and we talked about the reliability of the resurrection, and we talked about the eyewitness account and all of that. Uh, so tonight we're just going to pick up right where we left off. We're actually going to pick up in verse 12. We dealt with verse 12 last week. We're going to deal with it a little bit again this week, and, uh, and we're going to not finish the chapter tonight. It's a long chapter, and I want to cover everything that's in here. So we're going to uh, go to verse 34, and then we'll cover the rest. We'll finish the chapter next week uh, as the theme... It's, it's all about the resurrection, but the theme changes a little bit, and uh, you'll see that in, 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 as we go along. But I want you to look down at verse number 12. The Bible says this, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? If you remember, the purpose of this chapter is the Apostle Paul is defending the resurrection of Christ. And he, he's, he's, excuse me, he's defending the resurrection. There are people there at the church of Corinth, he says there, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the people at Corinth do not believe in a resurrection of the dead. They don't believe that people are, that believers are going to physically resurrect from the grave. And it's not uncommon for people to not believe in the resurrection. During the times of Christ, we read about the Sadducees who were kind of like the Pharisees, but the Sadducees did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in the resurrection. And even today, there are religions who do not believe in the resurrection. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in uh, physical bodily resurrection of Christ. The Scientologists do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. The Unitarian Universalists do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. Um, and then, of course, you've got your heathen religions, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, none of those believe in the resurrection. Some of them believe in reincarnation, but not uh, the resurrection. So the Apostle Paul is writing to defend this idea of not only our resurrection, but the fact that, the, uh, that we resurrect because Christ resurrected. And if we don't resurrect, then Christ didn't resurrect. And, and again, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, and he goes on to make these arguments about the requirement of the resurrection. He, he, he is going to explain why you must believe in the resurrection to be a Christian, and you must believe in the resurrection to be saved. And he's going to tell us what happens if Christ did not resurrect from the grave. But here's what I want you to understand. Today, there are so-called Christians who don't believe in the resurrection, not just from the weird religions that I uh, read off to you, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Scientologists, but even just mainstream Christians today, so-called Christians, will say that they do not believe in the resurrection. Let me read for you just a real small uh, piece of an article here from, this is from The Telegraph on April 10, 2017. It says this, well, the, the article is called, A Quarter of Christians Do Not Believe in the Resurrection. It says this, Nearly one in four Christians do not believe in the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, a poll has claimed. Fewer than one in three Christians in Britain believe the word-for-word -word, uh, biblical story of Jesus rising from the dead, with another 41% believing some sections should not be taking Taken literally, the Palm Sunday poll for the BBC found 23% of those calling themselves Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead 
at all. So you've got people today who think that they can be Christians, they can consider themselves Christians, they can go to Palm Sunday events and say, well, you know, that whole thing about him rising from the grave, I don't think we should take that literally, or I don't think that that's something that, that we should really uh, believe. In fact, one in three Christians in Britain don't believe it. Uh, a quarter of Christians do not believe in the resurrection, according to this article. So the question is this, can you be a believer and not believe in the resurrection? Can you be a Christian and say, well, I don't know, about that part of the resurrection. I don't know if that was literal or if that really happened. And that's what the Apostle Paul is defending. And he begins to give us some arguments about if Christ be not risen. Because if you look at verse 3, he says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, now he's not saying that Christ is not risen. Because later in the chapter, he says, now Christ is risen. But he's hypothetically saying, if Christ be not risen, He's playing the devil's advocate. He said, if Christ is not risen, then there are, some, uh, there are some things that we need to understand as a result of that. So I want you to notice these quickly. If you'd like to write them down, you can. Number one, he says, if Christ be not risen, then you're not saved. I mean, look at verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. Notice what he says. And your faith is also vain. He says, if Christ did not resurrect from the grave, then your faith is vain. Your faith is empty. Your faith will not help you. Look down at verse number 17. He says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Notice what he says. Ye are yet in your sin. So here's the thing. If, if, if the question is, can you be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? The answer, according to the Apostle Paul and the Holy Scriptures here, 1 Corinthians 15, is a resounding no. You cannot be saved, you cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ be not risen, then ye are yet in your sins. But there's another implication. If Christ be not risen, not only are we not saved, but if Christ be not risen, that would make us false preachers. Notice verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, notice what he says, then our preaching is vain. Notice verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses. I want you to remember those two terms there. False witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. He says, look, if we, if Christ be not risen, then you and I, and anybody who goes soul winning, and anybody who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a false prophet, heretic, if we're going around, this is what Paul's saying, if we are, we are found false witnesses, because we have testified that God raised them when he raised them not. It would make us false prophets. So the implications of not, of Christ not resurrecting from the grave, if he's not risen, then not only, we, first of all, we would not be saved. Our faith would be in vain. We'd be in our sins. Secondly, we'd be a bunch of false preachers and teachers. But thirdly, if Christ be not risen, then all our saved loved ones have perished. Notice verse 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? Notice verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins, then they also, notice, which are fallen asleep. Which are fallen asleep. And I want you to notice that when the New Testament speaks of believers dying, it does not speak of them as being dead, although it does use that term, but it, it often will speak of them as falling asleep. When a believer dies, he 
falls asleep. And you say, why, why does the Bible use that terminology? Is it because it's more poetic? Is it because it's nicer? No, it has the implication of the resurrection. Because if you're saved, one day that body's going to wake up. Just like when you go to bed at night, you're expecting to wake up in the morning. Well, you know what? When we hold a funeral service for someone who had a clear testimony of Jesus Christ, we can say that they've fallen asleep because we fully expect that body to wake up someday, to resurrect someday. And he says, then they also, which are fallen asleep, notice what he says, this is if Christ be not risen, then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. He says, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then forget about seeing your loved ones one day. They've, they're perished. They're gone. They're in hell. Look at verse 19. If in this life only we have a hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. We'll come back to that. Look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. So he says, look, no more hypothetical arguments. He is alive. We know that he is risen from the grave and become the first fruits of them that are slept. Now keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 15 and go with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, just real quickly. If you can find all the T-books, they're all clustered together. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. And when you get to 1 Thessalonians 4, do me a favor and put a ribbon there or a bookmark or something because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And we're actually going to go back and forth between... All of those T-books, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, we're going to be uh, going back and forth between those books for a little bit. So make sure you can go back and forth. 1st Thessalonians 4. And I want you to notice in verse number 13, he, he makes this argument, but he makes this argument in 1st Thessalonians also. 1st Thessalonians 4.13 says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep. Notice that terminology again. What's he talking about? He's talking about those who are dead. He says that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. You know, when it comes to believers who pass away, the truth is that we don't have to sorrow like those which have no hope. We have hope that we will see them again one day. Why do we have that hope? Verse 14, same argument that he's making in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians uh, excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, 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 1st and 2 Thessalonians, there's a theme of the rapture, which we're going to talk about tonight, and you find that same theme in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Notice what he says in verse 14. Why do we have hope? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And I want you to remember that phrase, God bring with him. But I want you to notice that our hope is that when people die, believers die, they are not gone forever. We don't have to sorrow as those that have no hope. We uh, believe and we trust that if Christ was buried and resurrected, then then one day they will be resurrected as well. Let me just make this point too, because we're going to talk about the, Je the Jehovah's Witnesses for a little bit, but let me just say this. The Jehovah's Witnesses today teach uh, a doctrine called soul sleep. And they'll say when people die, their soul go, you know, goes to sleep, and then if God remembers them, if they were part of the 144,000, if they, if they were a good Jehovah's Witnesses, then God is going to wake them up and whatever. You know what's interesting about uh, false religions, as you listen to false religions teach, it's, it's, you know, we, we talk a lot about the fact that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. 
For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. See, people that are not saved do not have a spirit. This book, this Bible is a spiritual book and it requires a spiritual man and the Holy Spirit of God to be able to understand it. And it's always funny to me how these false religions will not only get the, 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 the word of God wrong and the doctrine wrong, they, it seems like they get the exact opposite. I feel like God just kind of sends them a delusion and causes them to not just get it wrong, but to get it opposite, just to mock them and just to show how false their religion is. You know, we see that with the uh, Catholics, right? Jesus gives them a pattern prayer. He says, don't repeat this. He says, don't, you know, uh, don't repeat this and don't uh, quote this back and forth like the heathen do. And then what do the Catholics do? They say, hey, Jesus says, don't chant this prayer you know, don't chant like the heathen do. Uh, let me give you a, an example of a prayer. And then what do the Catholics do? They say, hey, let's chant that prayer. You know, it's just kind of like, are you serious? You know, or God, Jesus says, don't call any man father. And then they're like, hey, let's call our, our uh, pastor's father. You know, and, and you find this with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they'll teach soul sleep. But you know what's funny? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your soul goes to heaven when you die. But you know what the Bible says goes to sleep? Your body. So it's the exact opposite. They'll say soul sleep. And it's like, no, Paul said your body goes to sleep. Your soul goes to heaven when you die. Your body goes to sleep. Why? Because one day it's going to get resurrected from the grave. So it's always interesting how false teaching and false doctrine always just gets it the exact opposite. You know, they, they just, seems like they don't get it. It's almost like they're spiritually discerned. Like they just can't understand the Bible no matter how much they try. Keep your place there in 1 Thessalonians 4, but go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me give you one more thing, one more implication. If Christ be not risen, if Christ be not risen, we learned that we are not saved. If Christ be not risen, then we are false preachers and false teachers. If Christ be not risen, then we, uh, then we have to mourn like those which have no hope because our loved ones are perished. And then lastly, on this list here, if Christ be not risen, then we are wasting our lives. Notice verse 19. Notice what Paul says. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He says, if in this life only, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You say, what are you talking about? Well, skip down to verse number 30. He talks a little bit more about it in verse 30. He says, because he's talking about the fact that Christ is not risen, right? He's saying, if Christ is not risen. He says, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? He, he, he says, why, the, the word jeopardy there is talking about taking a risk or, or there, there might be a, a question that you could lose something. And he says, why do we take the risks that we do? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we live a disciplined life? Look at verse 31. He says, I protest by your re rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die daily. He says, every day I wake up and I tell myself that you are dead, Paul. He says, I die daily. I deny myself. I take up the cross. He says, every day I wake up and I don't do what Paul wants to do, but I do what God wants to do through Paul. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 32. If after the manner of men, I have fought with beast at Ephesus. Now look, the, the Bible uses the word beast in reference to reprobates. And he's saying, look, I, I get up, my life is in jeopardy. I live this disciplined life. 
I have to fight with these reprobates and these God-haters at Ephesus. He said, what advantage is it me? He says, what is the point of my life if the dead rise not? He says, look, if the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if Christ be not risen, then we're all wasting our time tonight on a Wednesday night studying the Bible. Just go get drunk and just go live for yourself and just go do whatever you want. Let us eat and drink. Why? For tomorrow we die. And listen to me. That's how the world lives their lives. Because they have no hope. Because they just live for this life. And he says, look, if Christ be not risen, then we're wasting our time. Then why live in jeopardy? Then why live the disciplined life? Then why fight the battles of the Lord in the battle? He says, look, if, 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 if in this life, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, he says, we are of all men most miserable. He said, we're basically wasting our time. We're, we're just missing out. But he says, now is Christ. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. So look, whenever you, whenever you start getting jealous at the world and you start thinking like, man, they look like they're having a good time and they look like they're having a great time, just remember this, that there is more to them this life than this life. And whether they die and go to hell because they weren't believers or whether they just get to heaven and they're the least in the kingdom of heaven because they were lame Christians, just realize that there is something worth living for God for. We can have assurance in the fact that there is more to this life. Now, let me just give you one last thing about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we're going to move off this point. But I want you to notice, notice what he said in verse 12. You see verse 12 there, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12? He says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he says, look, some of us are preaching that he rose from the dead. And then he makes this argument. He says, look, if he didn't rise from the dead, look at verse 15. He says, if Christ be not risen, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. He says, we are found false witnesses of God. In verse number uh, 15, I already lost my place there. Because, here's why, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, who he raised not up. Now, I want you to follow the logic here. He says, if we are preaching that Christ rose from the grave when he did not rise from the grave, that would make us false witnesses. I think it's funny that God uses that terminology because we know that Christ did resurrect from the grave. We know that there is a reliability of the resurrection, and we talked about that last week. So here's what you need to understand. The reverse of that is also true. If someone preaches that Christ did not rise from the grave when he actually did rise from the grave, that would make them a false witness. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, if Christ rose from the grave when he didn't, and we preach that he did when he didn't, that makes us false witnesses. But he says, we know, but now is Christ risen from the dead. So the reverse of that is true. Anyone who preaches that Christ did not rise from the grave, when he did, that would make them false witnesses. It's interesting because today you've got the religious, the, the religion that calls themselves the Jehovah's Witnesses, yet they're going around preaching that Christ did not resurrect from the grave. 
They do not believe in the bodily resurrection. They do not believe that Christ, they think that Christ rose spiritually like a phantom or a ghost, but there was no bodily resurrection of Christ. You know what that makes the Jehovah's Witnesses? It makes them Jehovah's false witnesses. It makes them liars when they teach and preach. And it's funny that God, I, I think God has like a sense of humor because he puts in here this, the, these, these words, false witnesses, just so it would make us think of the Jehovah's false witnesses. You say, oh, can you, should you say that they're false witnesses? Look, if they're preaching that he did not raise from the grave, which that's what they preach, when he did, that makes them false witnesses. And if, and if we're preaching that he rose from the grave, when he didn't, that makes us false witnesses. But you know what? Now is Christ risen from the dead. And we can have the assurance that he is risen from the grave. So we begin this, this, this section of the, of the chapter by seeing the requirement of the resurrection. The resurrection is required for believers. It's not optional. You don't get to say, well, I'm a believer, but, you know, I think that's uh, maybe figurative speech, or I don't take that literally. Then you're not saved. Then you're going to die and go to hell, and you're a false witness because the resurrection is not up for debate. It is a requirement for believers. So we see the requirement of the resurrection. But I'd like you to notice, secondly, tonight, not only do we see the requirement of the resurrection, but we also see the regeneration of the resurrection. Now, I want you to keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 15 and go with me to Titus. Remember I told you uh, to keep your place in 1 Thessalonians? If you've got your place there, just go past 2 Thessalonians, past 1 2 Timothy, into the book of Titus. And I want you to notice this biblical word, regeneration. Titus chapter number 3 and verse number 5. Titus 3, 5 says this, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. This is our salvation. We're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Notice, how, notice what happens when we got saved. By the washing of, I want you to notice this word, regeneration. You say, what does the word regeneration mean? He gives us a, another synonym just to understand it. He says, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is what we were talking about on, I think it was Sunday night. We we're talking about the fact that when you got saved, a new regeneration means that uh, it, it, the, it comes from the same word as like our word generation. We're talking about an offspring, when something is born, when something is created. That's what regeneration means. See, when you got saved, you did not, what, what we did not do is we did not reform the old man. See, that's what false religion wants to teach. False religion wants to teach, if you want to get saved, we got to take the old man and reform him. Get him to turn away from his sins, get him to quit doing wrong. But the Bible doesn't teach that we reformed the old man. We renewed a new man. We regenerated a new man. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become New. Why? Because it's a new man. And that happens at salvation. You are quickened with a new man. And he talks about this. Keep your place there in Titus. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 21. He talks about the, the first man and he talks about the last man. Notice verse uh, uh, 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. He says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. We'll talk about that last part of the verse here in a second. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Remember? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all, are, uh, for that all have sinned. Our dispensational friends can't figure that out because half of them aren't regenerated either. 
Half of them don't have a spiritual man either. And they think, oh, Adam and Eve were saved by not eating of the tree. No, they got condemned by eating of the tree. They were in need of salvation after that. And that's what the Bible says. By Adam came sin. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. See, we get our sin nature from Adam, it gets passed down. You're, when you're born a human, you are born a sinner. Now, please understand this. We do not pay for our sin. You know, we, it's, it's not that we go to hell because we're born sinners. You go to hell because you sin. But you sin because you're born a sinner. No one can live the righteous life that is required to go to heaven. Uh, so that's why we need salvation. But I want you to notice verse 21. He says, for since by man came death. Then he says this. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. He says, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to come to this earth? Why God had to come to this earth? Go, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you kept your place there in Titus, you're just going to go backwards in, past 2 Timothy into 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Why couldn't God just up in heaven say, I forgive them all? You know, or I'm just going to let it go, or I'm just going to look the other way. You know, here's what you need to understand. God is love, but God is not only love, God is justice. And God is not only just, God is, is righteous and he's holy. And he says, look, man messed up. He says, by man came death. So then he says, I will become a man and replace that first man. Because he says, look, he, he, he says, in Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, that's why God became flesh. First Corinthians 3, I'm sorry, First Timothy 3, look at verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Notice what it says. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The Bible tells us that God was manifest in the flesh. Uh, John chapter 1, you have to go there, but it tells us the Word was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Go back to 1 Corinthians, keep your place there in 1 Timothy 3. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. God became a man. You say, why? Why did God do that? Well, look at verse 20, 22 again. For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Look at verse 45. Just skip down to verse 45 just real quickly. And so it is written, notice, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was a quickening spirit. See, God was manifest in the flesh. Why? Because he took the place of Adam. Where Adam, and, and if you notice, and one of these days, I'm, uh, you know, I got a lot of questions about this on, on Sunday night, and one of these days I need to preach a whole sermon about body, soul, and spirit, and what that means, and all of that. But let me just say this. I want you to notice there in verse 45, the first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that we get our soul from Adam. We get our spirit from Christ. It is the new man. He is a quickening spirit. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Quickening means he can make things alive. It is God that quickens you who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what salvation is. And it is because you say, why are we able to be regenerated into a new man, into a new creature? It is because of one reason, the resurrection. 
So we see the requirement of the resurrection. We see the regeneration of the resurrection. I'd like you to thirdly tonight, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, keep your place there in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're going to come back to it. But I'd like you to notice the rapture of the resurrection. See, the, the rapture doctrine is actually tied to the doctrine of the resurrection. And we'll see that here tonight. Look at verse 23. But every man in his, I want you to notice these words, in his own order. Every man in his own order. And Paul is about to begin to break down for us this idea about how the, the rapture or the resurrection is, is done in an order. There are three phases to the resurrection slash rapture of this world. And it's equated to a harvest. It's equated to someone going out and uh, planting a field and reaping in that field. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 23. It says, but, if every man, but, it says, it says, but every man in his own order, so he's going to give us that order. He says, Christ the first fruits. Christ the first fruits. So there's three steps to the resurrection or the rapture. One is Christ the first fruits. Look down at verse number 20, or go back to verse 20. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become, notice, the first fruits of them that slept. Do you see that? So the first fruits is Christ. Now, if you think about the idea of a harvest, when someone would, you know, have a field that they would go out and plant, you know, farm or whatever it might be, you know, the first thing that would come up, at first you always have just the first fruit that comes up. It's not really the major harvest that you're waiting for, but just kind of before the major harvest comes what is referred to in Scripture as the first fruits. And that, in the Old Testament, they were to bring an offering, right? And to the Levitical priests were to bring an offering of the first fruits. Whenever the first fruit, whatever first came up, they were to give that to God. Well, that is a picture of Christ. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Now, you may ask, and you say, well, why is that? Well, it's because he's the first one that resurrected, all right? Now, here's what you need to understand. Because people often ask this question, well, didn't other people resurrect from the dead? I mean, Lazarus was resurrected by Christ just a few uh, weeks or days before his own resurrection. And all throughout the Old Testament, we have stories of resurrections. But here's what you need to understand. Christ is the first resurrection in a glorified body. And actually, next week, when we get into verses 35 through 58, we're going to go through and thoroughly study this idea of our future glorified bodies and what those bodies are going to be like. They're not going to be like the bodies that we inhabit today, the tabernacles that we inhabit today. But Christ is not the first person that... Re See, Lazarus and all of those people resurrected just to die again some other time. But Christ resurrected in his glorified body. So he is the first fruits. And then notice what it says in verse number 23. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. That's phase one. Christ the first fruits. Resurrected in his glorified body. Afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. So then we have afterwards, we've got they that are Christ. That's what we often refer to as the rapture. Now, I want you to understand that the rapture 
It's in, it, it makes sense that Jesus is called the first fruit, and you're using this kind of farmer harvesting terminology because the rapture is often equated to a harvest. Let's just quickly keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 15. Go to the book of Revelation. Last book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 14. And let's look at this quickly, and I want to show you some things about the rapture here. Revelation chapter 14, and look at verse number 14. Revelation chapter 14, and verse number 14. Notice what the Bible says. And I looked and behold a white cloud. I want you to remember that, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. And that's of course Jesus, having on his head a golden crown and his head and his hand a sharp sickle. You see there he's got a sickle. What's a sickle? A sickle is a short handled farming tool with a semicircular blade used for cutting corn. It's what they would use to bring in the harvest of the corn. So I want you to notice then in Revelation 14, he tells us that the Son of Man is on a cloud with a sharp sickle. What does he do? Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, notice what he says, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. What is that talking about? It's talking about the rapture. It's talking about the fact that one day he's going to harvest us and rapture us and gather us together out of this earth. And it's equated to a harvest. Go to Matthew chapter number 13. First, you're, you're in the last book in the New Testament. Go to the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter number 13, and look at verse number 37. Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 37. Now in Matthew 13, we have the story, the, the parable of the tares among the weeds. Remember that? And I'm not going to take the time to go through the whole parable, but in verse 37, Jesus begins to break down for us what the parable means because they asked him, you know, what, what does this mean? And he begins to give them the answers. Verse 37, he says, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed, so the character of the one that sowed the good seed, is the Son of God. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. And then notice this, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels, all right? So he tells us the reapers are the angels. That matches Matthew chapter 24. Now, we're going to go to Matthew 24 in a second, but I just want you real quickly to go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and look at verse number 23. Because today... You know, today you've got Christians today and Baptists today who believe in what's known as the pre-tribulation rapture. And they will often mock at, at those of us who do not believe the pre-tribulation rapture, those of us who believe in a, a post-tribulation, pre-wrath rapture, because they don't, they're, they're not understanding that the tribulation is not the wrath of God, and I don't have time to develop that. You can say that on your own. But they'll mock at us. You know, and they'll say, they'll scoff at us and they'll say, well, you didn't go to Bible college. Thank God, you know, our kids don't go to Bible college to go get molested by some college president or whatever. You know, but they'll say, you didn't go to Bible college, so you don't really understand because you didn't study the dispensational charts and you never read Larkin's book. And, and they'll say, you guys are so silly. You know what you're doing? You are confusing the rapture with the second coming of Christ. Because they'll say, you know, 
If you study the dispensational charts, what you have is a rapture, then you've got a seven-year tribulation, which, by the way, nowhere in the Bible does it say there's a seven-year tribulation. And then you have the second coming of Christ. And they'll say, the rapture and the second coming of Christ are separated by a seven-year tribulation, and if you would have gone to Bible college, and if you would have gone and read dispensational books, you would not be confused. Well, here's the problem with that. The Apostle Paul must have missed out on, Charles, on, the, on Larkin's book as well. The Apostle Paul must have been asleep during, you know, uh, eschatology class at Bible college also. Because you know what the Apostle Paul seems to think as he writes the Holy Scriptures of God? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He seems to think that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are the same event. Look at verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ, don't miss these words, at his coming. He says, look, when Christ returns, that's when we will resurrect. When Christ returns, he is the firstfruits of the resurrection, and then the rest of us will be resurrected at his coming. And people will say, well, I don't know, maybe that's not very clear. Okay, we'll go to Matthew 24. Look at verse 29. Matthew 24 and verse 29. Let's do it quickly because I'm running out of time. Matthew 24, look at verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man. Don't miss these words. Coming! Coming in the clouds. Does that kind of sound like Revelation 14? When the Son of Man was in the cloud with the sickle, getting ready to reap the earth. Notice what he says. Coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels. Does that kind of sound like Matthew 13? Where we were told that the harvest is the end of the world and the angels are the reapers. When he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect. That's the harvest. That's the rapture from, four, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Skip down to verse number 36. Notice what he says. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. Know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also, don't miss this, the coming of the Son of Man be. Notice. You say, oh, well, it's talking about the coming of the Son of Man. Notice how it's connected to the rapture. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, what do you mean? He says, it's going to take them away by surprise. It's going to take them away, the coming of the Son of Man. And then he says in, in verse 40, and please understand this, verse 40 follows verse 39 for a reason. That makes it its context. Look at verse 40. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord doth come. You say, what is that referring to? It's referring to the rapture. And notice how it's, it's called the coming of the Son of Man. It's called the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Paul said, it's the coming. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 3. Look at verse number 13. If you kept your place there in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 13, 3.13. I just want to show you how foolish it is to say, oh, you guys are confusing the second coming with the rapture. I, you, I, have you read the Bible? 
It seems like it's all he's talking about is a second coming, equating it to the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. Notice, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. I want you to remember that phrase, with all his saints. It says, with all his saints. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep uh, in Jesus will God, notice, bring with him. Now, a lot of people will ask this question. They'll say, okay, so the second coming of Christ, is it that he's coming with his saints or he's coming for his saints? The answer to the question is this, both. He's coming with his saints and he's coming for his saints. You say, how does that work? Here's how it works. When you die, your soul goes to heaven. When you die, your body goes to sleep. So he's coming with the souls, with the saints, to reunite them with the souls, with the body. You say, is he coming with the saints? Yes. Is he coming for the saints? Yes. It's called the rapture. When your soul will be reunited with your glorified body. That's what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 15. For this uh, we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the, notice, coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That's the dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be, notice these words, caught up together. That's the rapture. That's the harvest. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. You say, why? Do you really have to show us all these verses? Yes. Just to show you how foolish it is for people to say, oh, you're, you're confusing the, you know, the second coming with the rapture. Uh, well, so did Paul, so did Matthew, so did Jesus. So I think we're in good company. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren. I mean, how many times does he have to say it? By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, and by our gathering together unto him. Why would he say that? Here's why he would say that. Because at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is also the gathering together, of, it's also the gathering together unto him. You say, why? Because look, there is no seven-year tribulation between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. The rapture happens after the tribulation, like Matthew 24 says. So you can't separate the two. They're the same event. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't happen in one day either. The second coming of Christ encompasses lots of things. It encompasses the battle of Armageddon. It encompasses all sorts of different uh, things, the pouring out of God's wrath. But the rapture is what kicks off the official second advent coming of Christ. You're there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to notice verse number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 and verse 2. He says, That ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us. Notice what he says, as that the day of Christ is at hand. What's the day of Christ? I don't have time to develop it. Study the phrase, the day of Christ throughout Scripture. It's very clear it's the rapture. 
He says, look, don't let anybody think you that the day of Christ is at hand, or meaning the next event, or, you know, the next thing on the prophetic calendar. He says, no, it's not the next thing. Notice verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. What day? The day of Christ. What day? The day of the coming of our Lord Jesus, and by our gathering together unto him. He says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. See, the Bible says that there has to be a great falling away first, which I believe is a reference to the taking of the mark of the beast and basically the entire world becoming reprobate, you know, and virtually the entire world becoming reprobate, and the man of sin be revealed, the Antichrist. Look, the Antichrist has to be revealed before the coming before the day of Christ, before our gathering together unto him. And you say, why? Because the Antichrist is the one who brings tribulation, because tribulation is not the wrath of God. Tribulation is the persecution of believers by the Antichrist. Now, go, go, go to John chapter 5, and let's just try to finish this up real quickly. John chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we've been talking about the steps of the, of the resurrection, right? We have first Christ. He's the first fruits. So if you have the analogy of a farm... You know, the, the fruit that comes up first, that's the first fruit. Then you've got the harvest, where you go and gather all the main amount and bring that in. Then you have the gleanings. Leviticus 19 and verse 9, just one example says this, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Now, what's the gleaning? The gleanings is what you have left over. Once you go through and gather the harvest, you obviously can't gather every little thing. So you've got some things left over out in the field, and God would call that the gleanings. He would tell them not to go back for, for the gleanings to leave that there. There. Well, in the resurrection, you've got the gleanings also. John 5, 28, notice what he says. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. John 5, 28, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Verse 29, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. What is this talking about? This is talking about a day when people are resurrected, you know, to life, and then other people are resurrected to damnation. Is that the rapture? Because at the rapture, are people resurrected to damnation? And here's what you need to understand. This is the third and final step of the rapture or the resurrection called the gleanings. And this happens at the end of the millennium. Go to Revelation 20. We'll, we'll be done here real fast, all right? Revelation 20, look at verse 11. Revelation 20 and verse 11 says this, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up. Uh, the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The Bible tells us that at the end of the millennium, you've got this great white throne. Revelation 20 tells us that this is when unbelievers, those who did not believe on Christ, are resurrected to damnation. They are brought back. The dead, uh, he said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. They are brought back to be judged at the great white throne. But John 5 tells us that at that same time, some people are also resurrected 
unto life. Now, again, the rapture already happened a thousand years before uh, this event. So what is that talking about? That's talking about the fact that during the millennial reign, some people are going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ during the millennial reign. Some people are going to get saved. Now, here's the thing. When you get saved, after the, uh, once the millennium starts, if you get saved after the rapture has already happened, it's not like you get saved Dear Jesus, forgive me my sins. Amen. And then it's like, boom, you got your glorified body right then and there. It doesn't work like that. You go ahead and live the rest of your life and die normally, and then you get resurrected, or there's a second rapture, if you will. It's not, you know, a resurrection at the end of the millennium. But obviously the main harvest is what's known as the rapture. This would be the gleanings. This would be just what's left over at the end. You've got... People being resurrected unto life, and then you've got people being resurrected into damnation, and then, of course, they're sent into the great white throne, uh, they're judged, and then we go into eternity. So we saw the requirements of resurrection, the regeneration of the resurrection, the rapture of resurrection. Let me just quickly, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 24 through 28. I just want you to see this, and we'll be done. He says, then cometh the end, right? Because we've been going through these steps of the resurrection, the first fruits, the harvest, the gleanings. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. I want you to notice that the Bible says here that Jesus, after the millennial reign, will deliver the kingdom up to the Father when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. So Jesus is going to reign on this earth, but while he reigns on this earth, there will still be enemies like the devil who are going to, you know, the battle of Gog and Magog, or, you know, all of those things. He's going to reign, verse 26, till the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he, ex that he is expected, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself... So notice, Jesus reigns for a thousand years. He wins all the victories. He wins all the battles. Everything subdued unto him. Then the Bible says, the Son also himself be subject unto him. Unto who? Well, look at verse 24 again. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So the Bible says at the end of the millennium, Jesus gives the millennium to the Father. The Son becomes subject unto the Father that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So for all of eternity, God, will, the Father will reign and the Son will be subject unto him. But during the millennial reign, it'll be Jesus who is reigning, and at the end, once all the victories have been, all the battles have been fought, the victories have been won, then Jesus himself will deliver the kingdom up unto God, even the Father. You say, why is that important? Here's why it's important, because today you've got people attacking the doctrine of the Trinity, and people will say, well, I don't believe that God is three persons. Listen to me. The Bible is very clear that there is one God that exists in three persons. And people say, well, I don't believe that God is three persons. Well, then you don't believe 1 Corinthians 15. Because what sense does it make if God is just one person playing two different roles that the Father gives the kingdom, you know, the Son gives the kingdom to himself? Obviously, there is the person, the eternal person of the Son, you know, 
who gives the kingdom to the Father. You have to believe that there are three persons in order for the Trinity and for scriptures about the Trinity to make sense. You cannot say, well, I believe that it's a triune God, but it's one person. No, it's three persons. It's one God that exists in three persons. And people want to take things to an extreme. You know, they want to take it to the extreme where he just becomes one. And that's the oneness heretics. They want to take it to the extreme where he's just one God and not three persons. And then other people want to take it to another extreme where he's just three persons and not one God. You know, it's like they're not connected at all. Let me, newsflash, he's one God that exists in three persons. He's three persons that are one God. But you cannot deny, if you deny that he, there are three persons, then you deny the word of God. Because the Bible is very clear here that the Son also himself becomes subject unto the Father and delivers the kingdom unto the Father. So next week, when we finish up this chapter, we're going uh, to go through verses 35 and 58, and we're going to dig real deep into this idea of our glorified bodies and what our bodies are going to be like after the rapture, after the resurrection. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, allowing us to be able to study the Bible together and learn from it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged with the fact that we don't have to uh, sorrow like those which have no hope, and we don't have to be of all men most miserable. We've got a reason to live for you. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stay encouraged by that. And thank you for this chapter that we can learn that from. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.